You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit kingscross.org. So we are uh, continuing in our study of John 17. It's Jesus, what we now call the high priestly prayer. It is basically Jesus' prayer for his people. And so we are, have arrived this morning, our, our focus, we're really kind of dealing with the whole prayer almost every week with some focal verses. And this morning, the focal verses that we have are going to be verses 21 to 23. I'm going to begin at verse 20. You can follow along with me there. John 17, 20, this is Jesus. He's continuing a prayer that began back up in verse 1. I do not ask for these only. He had been in the verses just prior praying specifically for the 12, but as we talked about, um, we believe that those petitions about the 12 also uh, are petitions that would extend to all of us. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's all of us who are, are Christians or who might become Christians. Verse 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me." So Jesus is praying for the unity of his people, for the unity of the church, a capital C church made up of all of those who would ever turn from their sin and turn towards him in faith. And I told you back in week one that the glory of God for which Jesus prays up in verses one through four of John 17, it's the overarching purpose of all things. It is, if you will, the beating heart of the prayer is the glory of God. But the unity of the church, if we kind of continue that metaphor of a body, the unity of the church is kind of the connective tissue. It binds all of the other petitions together. That's why there are so many notes in your bulletin, because the unity of the church, it isn't kind of a standalone petition. It's this thread that weaves its way through the entire prayer. And so what I want to show you this morning is nine truths about the unity of the church. They're all coming directly from John 17. Now, I'll give you a, a bit of a disclaimer. We're going to spend a disproportionate amount of time on number two. And so if you're somebody who likes to follow along in your sermon notes, but you also like to follow along on your watch, don't freak out, okay? We're going to be in number two longer, and then we'll pick up some speed, okay? We'll get there. Nine truths about the unity of the church from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. First, the unity of the church reflects God's triune unity. Reflects God's triune unity. I know triune is an insider churchy theological word, but there are some theological words that you need to know. And this is one of them. 
God has revealed himself to us as one God who exists eternally in three distinct persons. Now, the Bible never uses the word trinity, but trinity is the word that we have used to try to express as best as we can this mystery of the unity of the divine nature, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we would say that God's uh, nature is triune, or, or it's Trinitarian, maybe if you prefer that. And so when Jesus prays in John 17, he prays in verse 11 that they may be one even as we are one. And then he prays in verse 21 that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And then in verses 22 and 23, that they may be one even as we are one. And so the unity of the church is designed to reflect the unity of the Godhead. It flows out of God's triune nature. You cannot understand anything else that we're going to discuss if you miss this. Now, you don't need to have your head fully wrapped around the Trinity. It's hard for me to wrap my head around that. It's one of the concepts in the Bible. Like, there are just some things about God, like, we're just going to fall short of fully understanding. And and that's why they call it faith. Okay, Okay, and so the Trinitarian nature of God is one of those things. But you have to understand that the unity of the church is designed to reflect that Trinitarian nature or you're going to miss everything else that we're going to talk about. You can't really understand the unity of the church even in general if you don't understand this. I would suggest that you can't pursue or advocate for or defend or even enjoy the unity of the church if you don't understand that it's designed to reflect the triune nature of God. Because if you lose this, then you lose the design and the purpose of unity. And all you're left with is unity for unity's sake. It'd be kind of like if you went off to college and, you know, you just kind of took a bunch of random classes and you kind of took an engineering class over here and an accounting class over there, an architecture class over here and a business class over there and you're having a good time and you're going along and you're getting good grades and after four years, you say, okay, well, I'm ready to graduate. And the registrar says, you didn't earn a degree. Like, I mean, you took some classes and you learned some things and that's really good for you. But, but there was no design to your activity. There was no purpose in what you were doing. All you did was take classes for classes sake. And there's some benefit in that surely, but you lost the purpose of taking classes. And so the plan for, the purpose of unity in the church is to reflect the triune nature of God. Second, the unity of the church is founded on the gospel. It's founded on the gospel. We'll slow down a little bit. Because this moves us from that theological truth about the triune nature of God, into the practical reality of the way that things work. In verse 4 of John 17, Jesus prays, I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me 
to do. And then down in verses 6 through 8, he expands on that work. He, he kind of says, uh, and here's what I mean by that. And he talks about manifesting his father to the world, giving his father's word to the world, and bringing to people to a place of belief in the work that he was doing and ultimately in himself. The word that we use to summarize the work of Christ is gospel. Literally, the good news that Jesus has made a way for sinners like me and you to be reconciled to a holy God by his grace through faith in his son. And so when we say gospel, we want to be clear about what we mean about that. We mean the overarching story of God's redemptive work throughout history. And so when we say gospel, it, it, it is, it's a It's an all-encompassing term. It begins with the idea that God created all things, and he created them good, and he created mankind to bear his image and to be in perfect relationship with him and with each other and even with the creation itself. And man's response to God's good creation, all the way from our first parents, Adam and Eve, down to me and you today, has been rebellion. Mankind decided that we knew better. We knew what was better for us than God did, so we've gone our own way. We call that rebellion sin. And what sin did was it shattered the paradigm of God's good creation. And so it broke our relationship with him. It broke our relationship with one another. It broke the relationship that we have, the stewardship-based relationship we have with the creation itself. And it's even broken our relationship with us. Because we know that, that we no longer exist mentally and physically and emotionally in the perfected state that God intended. And so God's response then to our rebellion was to send his son on a rescue mission. To live the life we should have lived in our place. To die the death that we deserved in our place. Not just for us, but instead of us so that by faith in him we might be reconciled to God. And the way we know that that's God's plan and that we can trust his promise of redemption and reconciliation and forgiveness and eternal life is because on the third day Jesus rose again. And in overcoming the grave, he proved that all of those things that he claimed were true about himself and all of those things that the prophets claimed would be true about him and all of the things that the church were going to subsequently teach about him were, in fact, true. This is what the resurrection does for us. It seals a promise. It gives us the proof that we need to believe these things. And that is good news. It's gospel It's the good news that defines the church. And the unity of the church is founded on that good news. Now, I think sometimes, if you've been around church for a while, and we think about the kind of unity that the church has, a lot of us are familiar with Acts 2. And so we read in Acts 2 about the early church, and we oftentimes even look back on that kind of longingly. Like we want to get back to that place. Acts 2, 42 through 47 talks about how all who believed had everything in common and they were together. And he goes on to describe like what was it like to be a part of those earliest days of the Christian movement. 
And it describes them eating together and worshiping together, studying together, selling their possessions, that they might be generous to one another, even experiencing miracles together. And in our mind, it seems like this kind of blessed episode of Friends. Like, oh, wouldn't that have been great? You know, they just all sat around drinking coffee and they dated each other. And it just seemed like this blissful kind of but actually, the unity that's described in the, towards the end there of Acts chapter 2 is itself a miracle. It isn't just that the miracle happens at the beginning of Acts 2 with the coming of the Holy Spirit. People begin speaking in tongues and manifesting the work of the Spirit in a way that hadn't been seen before. The unity at the end of chapter 2 is also a miracle in and of itself. And the same thing is true for us today. The unity of the church, capital C, universal church, the unity of this church, lowercase c, local church, is still founded on the gospel, and it's still a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And so just think about the ways that the gospel creates unity. The gospel overcomes political differences, in Jesus' day, we read about some of the earliest disciples. There was a guy named Matthew who was a government employee of the occupying Roman uh, government there in Jerusalem. He is working alongside a guy named Simon who's called a zealot, almost surely a member of this underground revolutionary movement that wanted to overthrow the Roman government that Matthew worked for by violent force if necessary. They're working alongside Peter, who's like a blue-collar guy who works for his dad, and Paul, who is a religious, elite, educated guy that went to private school and whose parents evidently had a little bit of money. Those are some differences, yes? Well, in our day, the gospel comes along and it unites Democrats who get irritated with Republicans because they think they don't love their neighbors enough. And it unites them with Republicans who get irritated at Democrats because they think, well, the Democrats don't love God and his word enough. And it unites them with independents who get irritated at Republicans and Democrats because they think they don't love each other enough. That overcomes these differences. So look, if the unity of the church is founded on politics, then the God of the church is a politician or a party. But the unity of the church is founded on the gospel. Gospel overcomes racial and ethnic differences. This was, if you go back and read the New Testament, the primary point of division amongst God's people in Jesus' day. We see it through story after story after story. You see it in John 4, where Jesus interacts with the Samaritan woman at the well. We see it in Acts 6, where the Hellenist widows experience inequity at the hands of the Hebrews. We see it in Philemon when Paul is pleading with Onesimus to be accepted as a brother. We see it in Romans 1 when Paul reminds Christians in Rome that yes, the gospel came first to the Jew, but also to Gentiles. And perhaps most notably, we read about it in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, when Paul reminds Jews and Gentiles alike, and he's specifically addressing them. He says this, in verses 14 through 16, he himself, Jesus, is our peace between Jews and Gentiles. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. And so making peace, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is all over the church in the first century. And it is in our day too. We still struggle with the sin of racism, still struggle to overcome the human propensity towards bias. We still struggle in seeing them, however you define that, right? Them, poor people, immigrants, you know, Louisville fans, whoever they are to you, right? We still struggle to see them as inferior to us. But if the unity of the church is founded on racial or ethnic homogeneity, like sameness, then the God of the church is tribal. But the unity of the church is founded on the gospel, Gospel overcomes socioeconomic differences. I referenced Acts 2 earlier. You see the same thing going on in Acts 5, that in the early church, what you see is that there were some members of the early church who had so many personal assets that they could sell them off and be generous to others. And then by definition, there are some in the early church who were in need of that generosity. That's a socioeconomic gap. We read in 2 Corinthians 8 and 11 that there were churches sending offerings to other churches because of need that was existing. I think perhaps the starkest contrast is found in the city of Philippi. And we read about the founding of the church in the city of Philippi in Acts chapter 16. And it, they kind of have this um, crazy mixed up launch team that comes together to help plant the church. There's a woman named Lydia. She's an entrepreneur. She's in the fashion industry and she has houses in two different cities. She is part of the, the beginning of the church there with a slave girl who is possessed by a demon and a Roman jailer who's a retired uh, Roman soldier now working as a corrections officer. Now, those are pretty big socioeconomic background differences that are overcome by the gospel. We see the same thing in our day. Church is made up of wealthy members and those who struggle to make ends meet. People who are highly educated and those who are functionally illiterate. Those for whom the institutional and systematic norms of our culture have paved the way and others for whom they have to fight to overcome those things. But if the unity of the church is found in a common tax bracket or some socioeconomic experience, then the God of the church is an economic system. But the unity of the church is founded on the gospel. The gospel comes together and unites people despite preferential differences. It overcomes preferences. Just think about the ministry of Jesus. Jesus teaches him synagogues, temple courts, homes, fields, and beaches. He argues theology with scholars, teaches in parables to common people, and goes deep with a small group of men who traveled around with him. The early church, if you read through Acts, is sometimes identified with someone's home, other times with an entire city. 
Paul himself, if you read through his ministry, he argues um, what might be called like an esoteric philosophy in Athens. He, he argues Old Testament theology in synagogues and practical spirituality with the Gentiles. These are preferences people have for how is it that we talk about the things of God, engage in the things of God, interact as the people of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And I do it all, he says, for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them unity in its blessings. And the same things are true for us. What unites Christians is not, or should not, be music or musical styles, dress code, uh, preaching styles, use of technology, approach to multi-site, denominational affiliation, small group curriculum, volunteer roles, or any other kind of preference when it comes to how we do ministry together. This is where almost always conflict occurs. How? I have this preference that we would do this. And the gospel overcomes those things because, watch this now, it, if the unity of the church is founded in personal preferences, then the God of the church is people. Right? If you can only feel united in a local church with people whose preferences are just like you, then the God you're worshiping is you. But the foundation of the gospel, or the foundation of the church, the unity of the church is founded in the gospel. We could go on and on. You get the idea. When unity in the church breaks down, it is because something more, something has become more important to us than Jesus and the gospel. I stumbled over it. Let me say it again. When unity in the church breaks down, it's because something has become more important to us than Jesus and the gospel. This is why one of the clauses in the church covenant that we have um, those of you who are covenant members know this. Um, if you're not a covenant member and you'd like to become one, we have starting point the first Sunday of every month. And so it's kind of an orientation class, so to speak. We talk some about what it is that the church believes. People who become covenant members, one of the things we have them do is sign a church covenant. It's got five or six clauses in it that kind of say, hey, this is how we want to do life together. And one of the clauses in that church covenant says this. We will work and pray for church unity in matters of non-essential beliefs or preferences so that through the church, the gospel might be displayed to the community. The unity of the church, the unity of this church, is founded on the gospel. Nothing else. Nothing else. Third, that's a great spot for an Amen. I have an elder, a deacon, nobody. <laughs> I'm trying to train them, Jacob, you know. They were clapping for you. I could get an amen, you know. We're getting there. Third, we'll start to pick up some steam. The unity of the church is kept by the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's kept by the Father, Son, and Spirit. 
In verse 11, Jesus prayed for his father to keep the disciples. In verse 12, he reminds his father that during his earthly ministry, he kept the disciples. And if you went over to Ephesians 1 and 4, Paul says that the Holy Spirit seals, which is just another way of saying keeps, believers until the day of redemption. And so just like the unity of the church reflects the triune nature of God, so too the unity of the church is kept by Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinitarian God. Fourth, the unity of the church upholds the truth. Upholds the truth. In verse 6, Jesus says his disciples have kept God's word. Down to verse 17, he prays for his father to sanctify them in the truth. And he says, your word is truth. The church, don't miss this, the church does not sacrifice the truth in the name of unity. The church does not sacrifice the truth in the name of unity. Rather, one way the unity of the truth manifests itself is in the upholding of the truth. And one of the motivations for upholding the truth is the perpetuation of unity in the church. And so they work together. I think one of the great tragedies of our day is the willingness, not just our day, of every day. We're not unique in this in any way. One of the great tragedies is the willingness of some, not all, some people in some churches to sacrifice the truth of the gospel in the name of what they would call love and unity. So there are some people, some churches and denominations and movements who have, they've made unity itself the object of their worship. And so unity for some has become the highest value. It has become the the object and the goal of the sacrifices that they make, metaphorically speaking. It has become the thing most celebrated. And it becomes the evidence of moral and ethical uprightness. But for Jesus, the unity of the church is inseparable from the keeping of God's word. The one leads to the other. And the one is evidence of or an outflowing of the other. And so here at King's Cross, our goal, as best as we can, is to give you the truth of God's word. And sometimes it's hard. And sometimes I know during the week, man, this is going to step on some people's toes. But what do I do when it's right there? And I know that there are times when declaring the truth of God's word even causes some people to leave this or other churches. But the unity that we have found in the gospel compels us to uphold the truth. We can't sacrifice it just in the name of unity. Fifth, the unity of the church pursues sanctification. Pursues sanctification. So the same truth that the church 
unifies around keeping and upholding also sanctifies her members in verse 17. Sanctification is another theology word. There are a lot of theology words you need to know, but there's a dozen or so that you just pick the language up, right? And I know that you're capable of stuff like that because for like half of you in the room, if you know, we get to football season and I say somebody's in a dime defense, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? So you can learn what sanctification means, okay? So all it means is this process of pursuing holiness and fighting sin and becoming more like Christ. Josh preached a whole sermon on this last week. If you want to dive deeper into this, it's up on the website. We had a video issue, but the podcast is up. You can go back and listen to the podcast. But here's what I don't want you to miss. If what unifies the church is a zeal for upholding the truth, right? And number four, if that unifies the church and what it leads her to do is to condemn the world or despise the world or withdraw from the world, well, then we're just legalists and hypocrites. And we embody the spirit of the Pharisees who are whitewashed tombs. But if what unifies the church is a mutual submission to the word of God, a mutual dependence on the spirit of God, a mutual desire to be more like the son of God, then we're taking the posture of the tax collector in Luke 18, 13, who cried out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so, yes and amen, the church upholds the truth to the watching world. Yes. But, The church upholds the truth internally first. And Christians pursue sanctification together. You can't pursue, you can't not pursue sanctification together and then decry the world for not being sanctified. You follow me? And so what the church does is the church pursues sanctification together as iron sharpens iron. Stirring one another up to love and good works, speaking the truth in love, growing up in every way into Christ who is the head. And the unity of the church, the truth of the gospel, compels us to pursue sanctification together. Sixth, the unity of the church produces joy. Produces joy. We spent a whole sermon on this two weeks ago, so I won't linger here. But in verse 13, Jesus prays that his people would have his joy fulfilled in them. Have his joy fulfilled in them. One of the natural byproducts of unity is joy. That's true in your workplace. That's true in your classroom. That's true on your athletic teams. Where there is unity there's a much higher chance that the people who are a part of that are experiencing some measure of joy. Unity is joyful. And the opposite is true. Division robs us of joy. To delight in or to derive joy from division and quarrel and contentiousness That's satanic. It is evil to delight in division. 
to grin and rub your hands at being able to create conflict in person or online, just to sow seeds of discord. None of, that's satanic. But if you are reflecting and being kept by the glory of the triune God, and you're being transformed individually and as a church by the truth of the gospel and upholding its truths to one another and to the watching world, and you're pursuing sanctification together. These things are joy-producing, life-giving, unifying acts of the church of Jesus Christ. The unity of the church produces joy. Seven. The unity of the church fuels mission. Fuels mission. Let me, um, just as an aside, right? This just pops into my head. Um, <clears throat> some of you, especially if you're brand new, um, you might look like, man, he is moving. He told us he was going to move and he is moving, right? Um, one of my goals in preaching is to preach different sermons in different ways. It's why sometimes we do whole books. Sometimes we do small passages. We just did Proverbs is a little bit topical, right? My goal is not that the only time you're being fed off the word of God is when you hear it come from me, right? So what I'm trying to do in this series um, it, even though we're moving a little bit briskly, is I'm trying to show you what I hope you go back and see in John 17 during the week. Right? Take your notes home, sit down this week with your Bible, and trace where I'm seeing these things. And in so doing, my goal is that we all together um, are growing in our ability to feed ourselves off the Word of God. Right? It's just a side note that maybe it's from the Spirit, maybe it's from me, but it's in my head. So <clears throat> the unity of the church fuels mission. We'll talk at length about this in two weeks. But in verses 21 to 23, you see how Jesus links. Josh talked about this a little bit last week in his sermon too. Jesus links all of these truths about his unified people to an outward-facing mission. Verse 21, so that the world may believe. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. And so the unity of the church is not intended to create this really comfortable club for insiders. The unity of the church is intended to create an army of believers on mission to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. But see, alone, we can't do that. It's impossible. As a church, King's Cross, we can't do that. The church just in the city of Charleston can't do that. But the capital C church, made up of all believers everywhere across time and geography, for that group of people, Jesus says, even the gates of hell can't prevail against us. And so together, the unity of the church fuels the mission of the church. And so together, as a local church, what we do is we link arms to try to reach our family and our friends to reach our neighborhoods in our city, and yes, ultimately, to reach the ends of the earth. And so this is why we are constantly asking you to give and to serve and to pray, because we can do more together than you can do by yourself. Yes? This is why we ask you to attend on Sunday mornings, unless you're sick or out of town, is because when you invite guests here, we want their experience to be as good as it can feasibly be. And when other people invite guests here, we want you to help make their experience as good as it can be. 
This is why we encourage you to sing. Because you never know when the person next to you is so heavy that morning that they can't sing. And hearing you and hearing us lifts their spirits. And it reminds them of the truths of the gospel that they're reading on the screen and that they are hearing 200 other people sing out loud. And you don't know the way you're ministering to the person in front of you or behind you. We can do more together. This is why one of the things that we've said for five years is our ministry multiplies when we scatter. Because the unity of the church gathered fuels the mission of the church scattered. And so we say all the time, this is the most visible thing we do is Sunday mornings, but it's not the most impactful thing we do. Because we reach a whole lot more people when we scatter from here than we do even when we are gathered. We need both because our unity when we're gathered fuels the mission when we scatter. You tracking? Eighth. The unity of the church displays God's glory. Displays God's glory. Verse 1, the beginning of the prayer. Verse 10 in the middle. Verse 24 at the end. All talk about the glory of God. This is, again, the umbrella under which all of these things fall. Ephesians 3.21 says, To him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. There is something about God's people that displays God's glory to the watching world. When the local church gathers, men, women, children, rich, middle class, poor, single, married, divorced, widowed, white, black, brown, Asian, the joyful, the grieving, young, middle-aged, elderly, conservatives, conservatives, moderates, liberals, new believers, mature believers, and those who are still carefully considering whether or not they're a believer. That's a foretaste of heaven. That is the invisible becoming visible. And somehow, in a way that I don't quite understand, but that the Bible's crystal clear about from beginning to end, the unity of God's people displays his glory to the world in a way that nothing else really can. That's the way he, when, when God spoke about creating a people for his glory, when he said, I'm going to make you a city set on a hill, literally Physically, he modeled this by commanding them to put the temple on the highest place anywhere around there. And by the time you got to Jesus' day, it was completely overlaid in gold so that when the sun was out and you were walking up there, it was literally a light on a hill. And now that there is no need for a temple because the sacrifices that used to be done there have been perfectly fulfilled by Christ. And when he said, I'm going to tear this down and I'm going to raise it again on the third day, speaking of himself, and he comes to his disciples and says, now you go throughout all the world and baptize people in my name. Now the church scattered displays the glory of God. Perfectly? No. But the unity of the church displays the glory of God. And ninth, the unity of the church expresses God's love. Expresses God's love. This is where we'll end. It's the very end of the prayer. 
verse 26, when Jesus asks that the love with which you, Father, have loved me, Jesus, may be in them, my followers, and I in them. Would you let the love that we have be with them? And the unity of the church expresses God's love. God's love is meant to be expressed by and experienced in the unity of the church. Now, does any local church or even the capital C church ever get that right perfectly? No, it does not. If you are someone who is just visiting King's Cross and what you think is, I didn't really like my last church. I really hope this church is perfect. You have, like, I'm sorry, you're going to be disappointed because we are not that. But in general, the goal of the church is to be a place where the love of God is both expressed and experienced in caring for and correcting one another, in laughing and loving and learning from one another, in giving and receiving grace and forgiveness when things don't go right, in recognizing and celebrating God's giftedness and God's design in one another, in growing and multiplying the church. And so, yes, we know that God's love is pure and perfect and holy. And our expression and our experience of it is not. But by God's grace, we are growing in it. And for now, the local church is the closest thing that we have this side of heaven to an experience of the fullness of the kingdom. And so in the unity of the church, we experience and we express God's love. So King's Cross, when, when you, when we pursue value and prioritize unity in the church, you are living out the answer to Jesus' prayer for you and for the people around you. You're living out the answer to your Lord's own prayer for you and for other people. And even though it's only a shadow of the unity we will experience in the new heaven and the new earth, it should produce profound joy. It becomes a persuasive witness to a lost and dying world around us, and it displays the glory of our great God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make us one, even as you and your son are one, you and him and he and you and he and us. The part of the Spirit's miraculous work in our hearts and in our minds and in our church would be a unity that defies earthly explanation. That you would Help us as a church to reach and to gather people from as many varied backgrounds as we possibly can. That in so doing, we might magnify the glory of your son. That we might worship under the banner of his name. That we might pursue the mission that he has given us together. That we might better reflect the community that you've placed us in, and the kingdom that you have made us a part of. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. 
We hope that you were encouraged by the Word of God today. Take a moment to click the subscribe button on your screen, and you won't have to come searching for us next time. Until then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.